Thank you for joining me. We're ready for episode seven of the Bible Journeys podcast. And this time we're going to take on something a little different, and that is significance across time. Welcome to the Bible Journeys podcast. Your traveling companion is Ed Dickerson, an author, teacher, and scholar. He holds a master's degree in religious education from Andrews University. As you explore together, you will learn tools and techniques that illuminate scripture, renew your faith, and brighten your journey. We talk about reading the Bible as it was meant to be read, how to read it in that way. And we also have talked about the fact that we want to know more than just the facts, we want to understand the significance of the text. And one of the problems with that is that significance uh, of the text depends upon time and place. Uh, certain words have different meanings in different times and different places. And then there's the whole business of the words themselves, which uh, originally were in uh, either Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek and not in English, you know. So we have to take all of that into account and uh, understand what it meant to the original audience before we can understand anything else. And that's what we're going to look at because this significance across time has three stages, three steps, however you want to look at it, three components, three layers. And we're going to look at at least the first two. We'll look at all, to describe all three, but we're going to go through the first two in this podcast. And we do this because, uh, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, all Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching and for rebuke and for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable and equipped for every good work. We are given the Bible to help us live better lives, to enjoy our lives more, and to provide more blessing to others as well. These are not separate things, by the way. Uh, that's the natural consequence of living a better life, is that we pr provide uh, blessings for others. Or you could put it the other way, making, you know, making sure that we bless others is part of living a better life for ourselves. So, again, quoting more morality, where we've been, when we read for information, we read for facts. When we read to understand, we learn not only facts, but their significance. And this is something that has been recognized for a very long time. We already mentioned this, but it was in the book Nehemiah, uh, chapter 8, verse 8. They read the book of the law. This is after the exile. They've come back. They've been in Babylon or you know, they've been in Babylon or in Shushan or somewhere like that for 70 years. And now they've come back to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And they don't remember many of them. They didn't have the Bible, perhaps, in uh, Babylon. Now, the Bible was available, but not everybody perhaps had it because they were in exile. Things were not the same as when you were at home. So after they moved back, the people who moved back, and these are the good guys, right? Because they're the ones who go, are going to go back and do this. And Nehemiah gathers them together, and they read, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Because 
let's face it, the Bible can be difficult to understand, and especially as we are removed in time from it. And we are removed in time a great deal farther than they were. So this is something which becomes uh, doubly necessary for us, or triply, or whatever. Whatever that mathematical factor is, because we're much, much, much further away. So there are three steps, and I would call these three journeys that we take. Remember, Mortimer Adler said that anything worth really worth reading is worth rereading three times. Well, there's three steps, three journeys, you might say, that we have to take through the same text to fully understand it. And the first one is discovery. You know, we come across a text in Scripture, and one of the problems is, I mentioned this before, when we're very familiar with a particular passage, we tend to just glaze over and not realize there might be something new there. So we need to rediscover uh, what is there, the voyage of discovery, a journey of discovery. Uh, what the author actually said, that is the discovery phase, the discovery journey. The next one is exploration. Okay, so now, now we know what was said, but where did it, where was it said and, and what cultural context? What were they thinking? What did they know? How did they understand this? Because we understand things somewhat differently today than they did back then. You know, and sometimes the meaning is lost for a lot of us, for example. Uh, saying, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's a saying that our grandparents were very familiar with, and they understood very well what it meant. Uh, because the, one of the ways you can check the condition of a horse and see how old it is and what good shape it's in by looking at its teeth. But the idea is that that was rude to do. If someone gave you a horse, you, don't, you might later do it, but not in front of them. You don't just sort of, well, let's see if this is worth anything. And that's what it's really talking about. Don't look a gift horseman in the mouth means don't be critical of a gift in the presence of the person who gave it to you. Uh, but we lose that because we don't live around horses. Now, again, my grandparents did because they had to hook up a horse and buggy to go to church or to go to town or do anything. They had horses they hooked to plows and so forth. This was, uh, they, they lived around horses all the time. And so... They understood that. We have to, if we want to know what it means, we have to go back and understand not only the time they lived in, but we have to learn something about horses. So that kind of exploration, the journey of exploration of the time and the place in which they lived, the circumstances in which they found themselves. And then the third journey is the journey of reflection. Okay. What does this mean for us? Well, as I said, if we understand that not looking a gift horse in the mouth means that you're not going to inspect this gift and see if it's worth anything, uh, that's, you know, it, it, that's what it means in our lives today. It means, and some people say, well, you know, it doesn't mean anything today because there are no, we don't do that with horses. We don't, most of us don't, aren't involved with horses. No, but the wisdom in that statement still applies. It just applies differently. So don't criticize a gift that you, you have been given uh, in, in the presence of the person. It's just, it's just not nice. It's just unnecessary. So reflection is, what does that mean for me today? Because otherwise, reading the Bible, if you're just going to say, well, it meant that to them, and there you leave it at that, it doesn't make any difference in my life, then you might as well be a hobbyist in almost anything obscure, like Etruscan art or particle physics or something that doesn't really impact most people most of the time. 
that's not the way Scripture was given, as we said. It was given to instruct, to equip all of these things to help us to live better lives. And so that's exactly how we need to approach it. So this discovery process, the first step, the first journey is the journey of discovery. And again, it is learning and understanding of the words that were actually used. And sometimes this is not as obvious as we expect it to be. For example, among Christians today, you were likely to hear uh, something like this. Uh, are you a born-again Christian? Have you been born again? This is part of our vocabulary. It's part of what we understand. And what happens uh, is that we they think, therefore, we know what it means. Let's go back, because there is a scripture where this appears. It's in John 3, when Jesus has met with Nicodemus at night. And... Let's see how this word, how this works out, born again, because the word that is translated again is the Greek word hanathen. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to look this up. The uh, NASB, among others, puts a little uh, reference there, and you can look, and when it says born again, it has uh, a letter, and you go down and look at that letter note, and it says, uh, it says again, or it says, or from above. Could be either of those two. So, when you know, look at those little notes. They they make a difference. And when you look up, you can you can find out uh, again easily online what the uh, word was that was translated again. Uh, you can find online there are interlinears. There are many many references for this uh, concordances and so forth. And you can find out what this word meant, Hanathan. And so uh, we look it up and we find out. That here's what it means. One, the first meaning, the primary meaning is from above, from a higher place. Things which come from heaven or from God. The second meaning is from the first, from the beginning, from the very first. Uh, and or it has to do with being at, above at the top or something like that. You know, musicians say this a lot when... Uh, we're we're uh, rehearsing. We say, let's take it from the top, which means, you know, from the beginning. So that same meaning can be found in English words. So here's Hanathan. And, or the third meaning now, the third one, the most likely one is from above, from a higher place. The third one, though, is anew or over again. And so there you have, you have to be born Hanathan. So does it mean from above? Does it mean from uh, heaven? Does it mean from the first? Or does it mean anew or over again? So let's go to the text. And we're in John 3, uh, 3 through 5 right here. And Jesus responded and said to him, now that's Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born Hanathan, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if he's not born again, if he's not born from above, He's not born from God. Well, you know, which meaning is intended here? Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? So Nicodemus is chosen the third meaning. It can mean any of those three things we looked at. He has chosen the third and the least likely of the meanings. How can you do this? 
But maybe it's appropriate context. When I say least likely, maybe the context indicates something else. Let's look at that. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he has to be born of the Spirit. That doesn't sound like again, does it? That sounds more like from above or from heaven. Keep going here. That is verse 6 through 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Be not amazed that I said to you that you must be born Hanathan. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. And so is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Now, it's interesting. If you look it up, and you, there, it's very easy to do. You can look online and find out that this word uh, Hanathan uh, occurs a number of times in the New Testament. And every other time, except for these two, every other time it was translated as meaning from above or from heaven or from the top. Only in these two places is it translated again. And why? Why did the translators choose again? And how did Jesus intend it? Those are the two, two questions. Okay. Which meaning did Jesus intend? Or, since John wrote this, we can say, which meaning did John intend us to understand as being Jesus' meaning? However you want to look at it, the question is, there are these meanings. There are only, the only two times in the New Testament where it's translated again is in this passage with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus clearly indicates he thinks it's again, getting back into your mother's womb and coming out again, anew. But let's look at the whole passage again. Let's look at this. Notice this. Now we have the, Anath the Hanathan twice. And then the in, one thing that's missed here is the word wind, breath, and spirit in Greek are all the same word. They're the, the Greek word pneuma. So I put that in here. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born Hanathan, he cannot be, see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he's old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone's born of the water and of the spirit, pneuma, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is flesh, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit, pneuma, is spirit, pneuma. You do not be amazed to you that I said you must be born Hanothen. The wind, and again, pneuma, it isn't obvious in English because wind and spirit are different words, but in Greek it's the same word, pneuma. The wind, the spirit, the breath blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has born, been born of the pneuma, of the spirit. So Jesus is referring again and again and again to being born of the Spirit. And of course, that clearly, it seems to me, indicates that we're talking about from above or from heaven. That is what he's trying to tell 
Nicodemus. You have to be reborn of the spirit, not of the flesh. Verse 6, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. You need to be spiritually reborn, not physically reborn, spiritually reborn. And again, multiple times, we look at here, we have spirit one, two, three, four, counting wind, five times in these eight verses. The three, I'm sorry, three through eight. So that's uh, uh, six verses. Six verses, and you have five times they use the word spirit. And if you think of Hannah then as being of the, uh, from above or of the, from heaven, you almost could make this into seven. Jesus is clearly trying to indicate, it seems to me, read for yourself, decide for yourself, but it seems to me very clear that Jesus is trying to say, you must be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Either he doesn't get it, or he doesn't want to get it. Because his discussion is all about this impossibility of physical rebirth. Instead of talking about what does it mean to be spiritually reborn. And if you read the entire passage of John, John 3, you find that Jesus is kind of rough on him. He says that, you know, the final verdict is that men love darkness. And remember, Nicodemus, we're told in John 3, shows up at night in the darkness. And Jesus says the verdict is that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. This is He's kind of tough on, on, on Nicodemus. And... Uh, to explain it all, now, again, this is up to you to decide for yourself. But as I look at this, the reason is that Nicodemus is playing dumb. He's pretending not to see what is right smack in front of him because it is overwhelming to him. He's not a bad man. Remember that he does, in fact, uh, come around and become a follower of Christ. It's not that. I'm not saying he's a bad man, but I'm saying in this particular episode, and we could, I could go on, we won't, but in, in John 3 and 4, uh, Nicodemus, uh, a Jew, a leader of the Jews, is being contrasted in his behavior with the woman at the well, who does believe. But we'll leave that for now. That's for a larger uh, analysis. But here we have this. Nicodemus is just, I think he's just overwhelmed. And so he, he he's not going to try and even deal with this business about being born spiritually. He's just going to say, well, I can't, I can't comprehend this. And Jesus says, well, you know, then you're going to, you're going to leave in darkness, which is what Nicodemus does. You know, you, you have to, this is the only way you can't even see the kingdom of God, it says here. So that's the first one. Understanding that Hanathan is, has these two possible meanings and seeing the whole passage this is one way of understanding, at the very basic level, the journey of discovery, discovering what was there. Now, exploration then is what did it mean in the context? I'm going to switch here because we're not trying to take an in-depth and do this through all three steps on this particular text of John 3. We'll do that in the future with something else. But right now, we just want to look at these. Exploration is looking at the broad culture and the broad cultural context it's exploring. If you go, you know, this is uh, when uh, the uh, United States purchased the Louisiana Purchase. They sent Lewis and Clark to explore, to find out everything. They want to know what was out there. They had a general idea, but they didn't know in specifics. And, and that was what the Lewis and Clark expedition was doing. They were exploring. 
they weren't exactly discovering new the new territory. They were simply cataloging or journaling and 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 categorizing everything. Well, that's what this does. We explore the culture to find out where this phrase fits in context. And this is two mules load of earth. It's a very interesting situation. Uh, this is in the story of Captain Naaman. And uh, one of these times we'll go through that whole story, or probably take a couple of episodes to go through that whole story, because that's a fascinating story. But we're not going to go in detail. We're just going to look at the very end of that story here, or very close to the end, to find this. Then Naaman said, now this is after Naaman has been healed. He's uh, He has bathed himself in the Jordan River seven times, muddy though it is. He, he comments on how muddy it is. And uh, he is offered to give uh, Elisha what is essentially a fortune uh, over what would be several million dollars worth of gold and silver in today's uh, prices and uh, costly uh, raiment, they say, and clothing and so forth. And, name, and Elisha said, no, I don't, because this is, you know, the gift of God is free. And Elisha won't do it for profit, but he will do it uh, because he wants Naaman to know there is a prophet of Israel. So then Naaman says, well, then please let your servant be given two mules load of earth. Now, this is a man who did not want to get in a muddy river uh, only a few verses earlier, but now he wants two loads of dirt. Two mule loads. A mule can take quite a bit of earth. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering nor a sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Well, this is kind of strange. Why does he want two mule loads of earth? And the answer is something rather uh, telling. And that is in the ancient times, and this is exploring again the culture and the context, Gods belong to certain places. They believed that gods were associated with uh, territory, and they didn't go beyond that territory. Uh, this isn't just uh, pagans, so to call so called. There are people who are not god worshippers. Here's here's the story of Jacob, uh, centuries before this, and this is after Jacob's ladder. He has this great uh, revelation from God has this vision of the ladder sending all the way to heaven and, and messengers going up and down it. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, the Lord is certainly in this place. So there it is. The Lord is right here. He's in this place. And I didn't know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then he named that place Bethel, which means, by the way, the house of God. So he believed that. Uh, later on in 1 Kings 20, 28, Ahab is involved in this. So it's during the time of Elijah. Since the Arameans have said the Lord is a God of the mountains, but not of the valleys, he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will hand over to you all this great multitude, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the Arameans, the Syrians, the Assyrians actually, said, you know, we'll, we'll find them on the plains because their God's the God of the mountains and the valleys, and not of the valleys. So we, down the plains or in the, uh, the valleys, we're safe there. Their God can't reach us there. And of course, that's false. God says, oh, that's why, since they said that, they're toast. Uh, and 
And so that's very important to understand that, that what happens is that, um, so this explains the exploration, explains why it is that Naaman wants two uh, mules load of earth, okay? Two mules load of earth for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering nor a sacrifice to other gods. That is to say, he is the God in Naaman's mind. This is the God of this place because that's where he was healed. And he wants to only worship the God that healed him from leprosy, which is very smart, very wise. And so he wants two load, two mules load. He's going to take that and put it in his villa we call his yard but there might be a garden there might be and he's going to put these two loads in one place and there he's going to offer sacrifices to the god of israel on israel's soil suddenly this becomes a significant thing he is he's still going to remain an assyrian general and that's he covers that in the next few verses we'll get a, we'll tell that sometime He's still a good, loyal Assyrian, but he now is a worshiper of the God of Israel. And that, by the way, is quite a cognitive dissonance for those days, because generally, you had the nation, you had their God, and they were the two were kind of associated together. There was so, uh, no uh, separation between the two. Uh, that's why when nations fought, was and the one who wants it, well, our God beats your God. You know, my dad's bigger than your dad's, I guess. But here it is. He says, you know, I, I, I'm never. I'm going to go back and I'll be a loyal general, but I'm going to worship only the God of Israel. And to do that, I need Israel's soil. So there are three journeys. I want you to remember that. The first journey is discovery. What did what words did the author actually use? Because unless we know what those words are, as we saw with our passage in John three we may miss the point altogether. So we need to know first what was said. The second journey is the journey of exploration. What did that mean? What was the significance, to use Mortimer Adler's word? What was the significance of that passage in that culture and at that time? And the third one then is the journey of reflection, which is, okay, I understand the significance for them in their time. What is the significance for me in my time? And that can be a really interesting question because our times are so different. The principles of God are unchanging, but the application of those principles depends a great deal upon the time and place. And exactly what that means we'll have to leave until next time. Thank you for joining me. I hope it has been useful to you. And may you enjoy your own Bible journeys. If you've gained something from this discussion, please be sure to share it with someone, because those who join our Bible journeys here can become our traveling companions for eternity.